1: Coming up this hour, the Illinois mask mandate goes into effect today. Aubrey and I are going to discuss that. And then we're joined by our friend Sarah Zylstra, senior writer and faith and work editor at the Gospel Coalition. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. It's a day none of us were looking forward to, besides it being the end of August and the end of summer. It is also the beginning of Illinois' next round of mask mandates.
2: yeah uh, here we go again.
1: So we talked about this last week, Governor Pritzker. He uh, made an indoor mask mandate, uh, regardless of your vaccination status, and he gave it a couple days for people to get ready for it. And so the day is today. So... Uh, In theory, I'm going to put that in quotes, uh, you go into restaurants today, you go into stores, the grocery store, you go to your local library, whatever else it might be, chances are that you are going to need to wear a mask. Aubrey Sampson, how are we feeling about that?
2: Ah, Ah, That's how I'm feeling. That is my that is my intellectual response. You know what? Here's the part that's killing me, Brian. All right. Vaccinated and unvaccinated. It's hard. I thought by getting vaccinated, one of my promises in life was that I was not going to have to wear a mask. Those of us vaccinated were going to live free. And I feel I have some feelings about it. Now, simultaneously, I am going to wear a mask because I am not an anti masker. I want to do right by my neighbor. I want to render to Jesus what is Jesus and render to Caesars what is Caesars. This is not really a big deal at the end of the day. I don't love it, that said. (laughs) I will submit I I don't love it. How's that?
1: How about when you walk into – inevitably, because what's happening here is – We are under a mask mandate, but there is also little parts. When you read into these stories more deeply, it really doesn't look like it's going to be enforced with very very sharp teeth. Let's put it that way. Unlike the school mask mandate, which we've already talked about and seen, uh, that one is being enforced uh, with kind of some thunder. Uh, This one, it's not like people are coming around. So, all right, Aubrey, you walk into uh, your favorite local restaurant tomorrow, Mm -hmm. and you realize – no, nobody's really wearing a mask. What are you going to do? What, what What is your move? I, I want to know how we are about rule following. I kind of want to I'm
2: a rule follower. I'm a firstborn. I'm going to wear that mask until I sit down and then I'll take it off. I, I mean first that's foreign. Yeah, I will I will do that. I, it is funny. Kevin and I were at Target recently and I was like, I'm not wearing a mask until I have to. It's not Tuesday, you know. And he was it's like, Aubrey, Tuesday. put on your mask. Do not be that person. Like you don't know who you've been around. You don't know who's vulnerable here. I'm like, okay. So I I have a bad attitude, but I'm going to go for it in the name of Jesus and Jesus's love. How's that?
1: <laughs> I have a bad attitude. Well, <laughs> I want to
2: know what you think about it If for church, Brian. That's yeah, where it gets real serious.
1: Before we talk about church, and then I'm just going to give you my honest take okay. like to, uh, on church. But uh, yet the other day I walked into Panera. I am a Panera, as you know, I am somebody who goes to Panera often. You're
2: a Panera junkie, as they say. I
1: really am. I really am. And so... Uh, they've got the sign on the door, please wear a mask. And I walk in kind of holding my mask and look around and realize nobody's wearing it. I'm like back in the pocket. (laughs) So like, you're not going to do it. I just, and I wasn't, here's the funny thing. And many people probably feel this way. I wasn't that way before. Interesting. I, I was like, I'm like you, I'm not the oldest child, but I am a complete rule follower. Uh, I'm the person who's like, well, somebody asked me to do this. I'm going to do this, or I get nervous that I'm going to get caught, whatever else it might be. I tend to be a rule follower. Uh, but that is a good, uh, segue into this, Arbor. You asked about churches. I, I honestly don't know what I want to do or I'm going to do. And yeah. I'm just being honest. Some people, That's fair. I'm going to make, I'm going to make two, I'm going to make both ends of the spectrum really angry here. Sound good? Um, great. Go for it. I'm really happy with how our church has been. We have not had any COVID issues. We're very Praise mask God. optional. Uh, most people, we we still have the seats not as far apart as they used to be, but they're still not cra- you know really crammed yeah. together. Yeah, I feel really good about the rhythm that we're in, and it feels like the people who are coming on Sunday uh, are the people who aren't worried about COVID. They're either vaccinated, they've yeah. had it before. I think you're right, I think or you're they right. tend just not to be worried. The people who are probably most like, I need to be in a mask, everyone needs to this, haven't been coming back
2: anyway. They're staying home, yeah.
1: And so I feel, quite frankly, really torn and not excited to at all even think about having my people put masks back on because I think, A, a lot of them are going to be like, I can't do that again. Uh, But B, I don't feel like we've had any problems. And and some of you are probably like, that's not the point. I understand. Here, let me very much say this. I understand all the arguments about what against what I'm saying. <laughs> it's just how I'm feeling right yeah, now. Yeah, you're I just don't know. talking about
2: how you feel, not even necessarily the decision you'll make. Just like, and, this is how I feel about it.
1: And we also, I also know that Everyone I've talked to, nobody has a big appetite for it at the moment, and we also know that churches kind of have these special, uh, like uh, dispensations. Yeah, like you're right. Everything's recommended to churches, not mandated, and so I'm not even necessarily breaking the law to be like, nope, we're not doing it. And so it's that rule follower versus you want to, you know, you don't want to be that guy, but at the same time. I'm not really sure it makes that big a difference and we haven't had any issues. So I'm wrestling. I know you guys are in a rental, so it's a little bit different. But still, where's your head at for your church?
2: So, you know, we are in a different situation because we use a public uh, uh, city-owned building for our church services. And therefore, they have asked us to Tell everyone to wear masks, period, right. vaccinated or unvaccinated. So we have to send out that announcement to our whole church this week. And, you know, I was at Willow Creek over the weekend hearing Hosanna Wong preach. And uh, when I walked into Willow, they had all these signs as I was walking in. Um, and they had, you know, like a cartoon of a guy in a mask. And it said, yup, the whole <laughs> time. It just said, "Yup" the whole time? And then at the end of the service, uh, one of their pastors, a friend of ours, Sean Williams, got up and just said, hey, I don't like it. I know how we're feeling about it. But listen, this is not a political move. This is not a, you know, fear over faith move. This is a decision of love. We have vulnerable people here. Uh, he had just lost a friend to COVID like eight days mm-hmm. earlier. So it was feeling very sensitive for him. Their pastor had had COVID. So he was like, we're doing it. And I, and he was like, and I'm so grateful that here at Willow, this isn't going to be a big deal. Like he just ah! pastored them so well <laughs> through it. And I, I feel like for us, that's, it's mandatory at this point for us because of where we meet. So we're just going to have to take that same posture yeah. knowing like, we don't love it. Let's pray this isn't forever.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, it's it stinks for you guys that it's that you have no choice about it. But in other ways, it's kind of nice that you have no you kind of got that. Yeah, it's cover. true.
2: It's true. You're right. It's 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 done. The decision yeah. is made.
1: Yeah, I'd be interested to know what the result at Willow has been from that. I it would be interesting. There's going to be books written about these things going forward. So it's a new day, and in many ways, it's an old day. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Here we are again. New. Nothing is new under the sun. So here we go. Coming up next, Sarah Zylstra, senior writer, faith at work editor for the Gospel Coalition. Going to join us to talk about her new article entitled Saturday Justice, How Church-Based Legal Aid is Growing. Stay with us next as we talk to Sarah Zylstra, Sarah Zylstra here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, Aim 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I uh, are thrilled to be joined by a real friend of the show, senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition, co-author of the book Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. That is Sarah Zylstra. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm
3: great. Thanks for having me on. We
1: always enjoy having you on. And hey, we wanted to just spend a little bit of time talking about a fascinating article that you just released at the Gospel Coalition called Saturday Justice, How Church-Based Legal Aid is Growing. And so as we dig into that article, just what piqued your interest about this? Why did you write this article in the first place?
3: Well, I'm married to an attorney. And so that was the first thing that drew my interest um, (laughs) to the legal side of it, for sure. Um, And then I was just drawn in by the story that Bruce Strom, who is the attorney here, tells and his life. He grew up in the Midwest, um, in Indiana and Illinois. He grew up in a little town. His dad was a pastor. um, And he loved the church and loved his dad, but he didn't love being poor. Mm. So he went to Judson University, which is close to us. um, And he went to law school and became a trial attorney. And settled in the Western Chicago suburbs and was going to church there, being a trial attorney, um, married to a beautiful girl named Helen, and everything was going just like American dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except they couldn't have kids. And Mm. he just so wanted to be able to provide for a family. And so for nine years, they struggled with infertility Mm. Um, and it starts to wear on you after a while. Like that's a pretty brutal thing. It takes a long time. Um, And his faith started to crumble a little bit. And he just felt like, where is God? Is he paying attention at all? Mm. Um, And his wife, you know, he's going to church less, reading his Bible less, um, sort sort of drifting away. And his wife is watching and praying and praying for God to get a hold of his heart. Mm. And so after a while, God gave them children. Mm. He gave them two twin boys. Wow. Which w- served as just a reminder to Bruce of the promises of God and how good God is. Wow. Um and and at that moment you would think now he has it all. He's got a beautiful wife, he's got twin boys, he loves the Lord, he goes to church, he's got a great job. Um, he likes what he's doing and he's making a ton of money, mm-hmm. except, and this is what I find so interesting. He had gone through though that almost a decade of suffering. Mm. And as Tim Keller will tell you, suffering will change you. It will either right. change you to be a better Christian or a worse Christian, right. but it will not leave you as you were. Yeah. So he is a different person than he was before. Um, and as such, he went to a conference in Texas with a man named John Robb, who was at that point, I think, 78 years old, giant guy, six foot six inches tall, wow. passionate about legal aid and just really was doing all he could to start more and more legal aid clinics. And our guy, Bruce Strom, was amazed by that. Like, here's this guy who looks as old as Moses, and he's trying his best to start legal aid clinics even now. And he's like, I think I could do that. Wow. Maybe out of my church, right? Like if we had a Saturday legal aid clinic. And so his wife, um, in God's kindness, was a um, immigrant from Puerto Rico and could speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. And by God's kindness, they were in a, a heavily Hispanic neighborhood. And so well. she could um, reach out to the the neighborhood around them and say, hey, we're on Saturdays. Bruce is going to be sitting at church in the Sunday school room and you can come on by and we'll pray with you. And, you know, if you have legal questions, you know, come on in. Yeah. So they did, and they were, and it was amazing to me how quickly they were overrun, um mm-hmm. and so then had to start expanding. I mean, these are, are problems like um, you know, helping mothers get child support payments or they helped an older woman keep the income she earned from cleaning houses or. Um, helping people prove that they had paid their rent and so they shouldn't be wow. evicted. Helping people with interest, like you know, if you get a one of those loans. Right. One guy they helped was paying forty five percent interest oh. on his truck on oh, uh, payments, hi. like just like crazy stuff. The stuff that you'd be like, that is for sure injustice. Yeah, um, and yet. If I, if I commit a crime, I'm given an attorney for free. But if someone commits a crime on me, I'm not Mm. given an attorney for free. Um, And so all this representation was impossible for people to pay for. Mm. Wow. Um, So he started from there and it has just grown out from there. Wow. That is so cool. I mean, this is an
2: incredible story, Sarah. I feel like I have so many questions, but one of the things I I do want to ask you He says, I believed poor people were just abusing welfare, even though I'd grown up in rural poverty. I'd run so fast that I didn't know much about it. Were there things that you discovered that he learned um, because of this?
3: Yes. I think it was just the nature of injustice at that level that we don't see. Like The conversation that we're having about justice is sort of high level, and it happens on Twitter, and it involves a lot of simplifying things and yelling about things and thinking (laughs) about like white supremacy. Right. But in, but you guys, injustice in real life is like, why is that man having to pay 45% interest on that loan? He just took out or like, why did that disabled man, he paid his rent on time. And then his, you know, landlord said, no, you didn't, you're evicted. Well, Mm. he did. Um, and so it's just like the little, you know, you need to pay people for the work that they did. Mm. Um, That kind of the injustice there, the nitty gritty of it, the everydayness of it. And it just becomes a conversation that looks a lot more black and white than it does at the high level. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sarah, people are listening right now going, man, that's that's an inspiring story. I really like the story. What do we do with it? Like what can we learn from this guy just kind of taking what he was good at and passionate about and seeing God use it? What, what's the, what's the lesson for all of us out there?
3: Um, one is that if you want, you can get involved. If you go to their website, they're called Administer Justice. And they need not only attorneys, but they pack these. So they're in, a, in churches all over the Chicago area and, in fact, all over the country now. But they pack them with volunteers. Mm. So when you walk in, he said, well, I didn't want my place to look like a legal aid clinic, which looks kind of like a DMV, mm. right? He wanted it to be like, when you come into a church, first of all, you're coming into a church um that's maybe not a place you would walk into otherwise and then a volunteer will say yeah you're in the right spot can i get you a cup of coffee um hey if you have a kid with you because you didn't have childcare this morning we've got somebody who will play with your kid mm-hmm. in our nursery I churches are so set up for this yes um, or like hey and then they also have a volunteer who goes with you to talk to the attorney that's an intimidating thing to do right um, and then who will also help you figure out what that attorney said so if at the end the volunteer looks at you and is like did you fi- do you know what the attorney wants you to do and you don't she'll be like no big deal let's go back and ask them again mm. like they just want to really make sure you get it I love and then two that. weeks later they'll call you again and say like they'll follow up on it again. So one thing that you can do is to get involved with administer justice themselves. And another thing that I love about this is that it's rooted in the church. Mm -hmm. Like it brings justice Justice should best be found at the church, Mm -hmm. right? And so it packs the gospel around it as well. People pray with you. um, They talk about sin with you. um, And they also talk about forgiveness with you because Mm -hmm. all of these injustice issues are wrapped up also with sin and grace issues too. Um, So I think that's a beautiful thing.
2: Oh, it's so beautiful. And Sarah, I just want to, with one last question, kind of dig into that because I do think sometimes there are critics of of movements like this or, or justice work like this that kind of say no we can't we can't be doing this type of justice we need to be declaring the gospel but what I hear you saying is they're doing both and I, I guess I'm just wondering even theologically like what is biblical justice
3: mm, that's so good I was just gonna say there is no like the truest justice is biblical justice, that's right right I mean it's just like that's the very definition of it so that's why I love so much that it's in a church like yes biblical justice is seeking justice for the widow or for the poor, the immigrant or the childless, like just lit, just in their everyday lives, helping them to skate along kind of in a way that they don't get tangled up with the injustice from the either the payday loan people, sometimes their own bad decisions, um, sometimes systems that are pulling at them. Um, and of course, the justice of our own sin and every one of us being found as guilt, more guilty and as guilty as anybody else and Jesus dying for us that and washing us mm. clean and standing in our place. Um, so really like that's, that's the justice that they're looking to share with their clients as well.
1: Again, Sarah Zalstra is a senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. We'd encourage you to go check out her new article at the Gospel Coalition entitled Saturday Justice, How Church-Based Legal Aid is Growing. Just a a fascinating kind of look into what some people are doing out there. You could also go to the website called administerjustice.org. That's administerjustice.org. Sarah, we always appreciate the time. Thanks for jumping on with us today.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Yep, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. Yesterday, you and I were talking about this idea of deconstruction. Why don't you define for people briefly, when we use that term mm-hmm. deconstruction, what are we talking about?
2: Yeah, what we're talking about is people who have been in the church for a long time, and this is specifically an evangelical phenomenon, and I might say it's a white church evangelical phenomenon, um, but essentially it's people who are taking a step back from their evangelical upbringing and really, I think criticizing and I would say um, tearing down might be a strong word, but tearing down the things that they feel like either are wrong or anti-biblical or just don't fit with who they are now. And then trying, I think, in the positive view of deconstruction, trying then to reconstruct their faith with a like a stronger biblical I don't know, worldview in a mm-hmm. in what does seem to happen a lot is that they end up walking away from the faith altogether um, and just rejecting basically rejecting any type of traditional values that they grew up with. I don't know that. That may be too worried. Would you would you agree?
1: I, I totally would. It's this ripping down. Uh, oh, the whole point, and what we talked about yesterday, was uh, what is the end goal of deconstruction? Right, Hopefully, right. The end goal of deconstruction is then reconstruction upon a strong foundation, right? And so it's a lot of looking at how was I, uh, the church I was raised in, the things that may not be biblical, but I've always just kind of taken upon myself, the neg- whatever else it might be. Unfortunately, what's going on a lot of in the deconstruction movement, and it really is a movement right yes. now, is deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction, and then leaving it with nothing else. And yeah. uh, that got really highlighted by what um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, they took kind of a week off last week, uh, and and did an interview with Joshua Harris, right? So Joshua Harris, uh, for people who are unfamiliar, he was kind of at the age of 18, 16 mm-hmm. was big mm-hmm. in the uh, in the evangelical world, the homeschooling world, but he famously wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, which I fair to say, Aubrey, you and I were, were of high school and college age that time kind of ruined dating for a lot of us. <laughs> no,
2: I, I didn't read it. I had a I lot of friends that were reading <laughs> yes. it and were practicing the uh, courtship. That's thing right. I just didn't get into it because my parents didn't, so that I, I do feel a little bit spared from it. But I was aware that this was happening in the world, definitely.
1: Yes, uh, yes. a lot of people, especially in our generation, were were very uh, affected. Informed their dating kind of perspective was formed, ironically, by a guy in his late teens, young twenties, uh, and so Joshua Harris, uh, and so Joshua Harris has since. He went on to lead a really big church in the Sovereign Grace, kind of under the Sovereign Grace umbrella. Uh, but uh, he not only resigned, he not only got divorced, but he has since said, I'm not a Christian anymore. Right. Uh, which is a huge deal. Devastating. And, yeah. Uh, Mike Cosper d- devoted an entire episode of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill to talking to Joshua Harris about this. Uh, and Aubrey, I know you – did you listen to that episode?
2: So I haven't had a chance to. Kevin did, so I feel like vicariously I have.
1: <laughs> there's That's awesome.
2: I won't say much. I'll let you talk about it.
1: Well, there is an unbelievable – you do need to listen to it because there's an unbelievable part where Mike Cosper, he turns from podcast host to pastor. And he, he says to Joshua Harris, I don't believe Jesus is done with you.
2: Mm. And he basically
1: tries to encourage him, don't give up.
2: Mm. Uh, and he
1: says, uh, God is a tender heart on those that are struggling. It's mm. the heart of Jesus to leave the 99 for the one. Oh, it
2: makes me want to cry. Uh,
1: he literally, his final words to Joshua Harris, kind of what I just said to you is he said, I somehow think that Jesus isn't quite done with you yet. And I talked to many people, and this is coming out of an article by Tara Beth Leach, who I believe is a friend of yours at Missio Alliance, where she says a call for pastor medics to help heal the church. Wow. So, Aubrey, let me spin this forward and to say if we've got people around us deconstructing, you've got famous Christians deconstructing Mm -hmm. podcasts about it, this or that. What is the role of the pastor right now? What is the role of the pastor in the midst of all that we see going on?
2: Yeah. You know, this has been, it's funny. Like this is, I'll just be really vulnerable and and real with you. This has been something I've been struggling with a little Mm -hmm. bit as I'm seeing like people in our church move more and more to this ex-evangelical slash deconstructionist movement because I find it a little bit frustrating. Like, mm-hmm. don't you know the God who saved you is not the same as the sins you're seeing in the church? Like, mm. aren't you able to separate his goodness from that? But that shows my lack of compassion, to be honest. So I have to like check myself before I wreck myself as a leader and a pastor <laughs> there. Um, I think our role is doing what Mike Cosper said, sitting with people, honoring their questions, giving them safe space to express wherever they are, not trying to fix, not trying to correct, not trying to tell them that they're wrong or, or right. convince them, right? Like win the argument, but instead just to be like, yep, but God is still here in that's this. Right. And I think that's it. I, we, you know, we're part of this beautiful small group and there's a couple people in there that are actually in the process of deconstructing. And I have learned a lot from my small group members who have just allowed these folks to express all of their doubt and all of their frustration and all of their, but still encouraging them. Like, that's all right. Just keep praying anyway. That's all right. We want you here. And it's, it's been, um, I think, uh, our witness. Mm-hmm. During someone's deconstruction is actually our best witness. Like Oh, that's good. Be with them without trying to fix. Just be and pray and speak truth. I mean, I think that's what Mike Cosper did. Mike Cosper didn't stay away from speaking truth, but he did it in such a loving, healing way. And I think that's the heart and posture we need to have. What do you think? That's
1: really good. Well, let me ask you a question. I didn't think uh, we'd go in this direction, but you just kind of opened up about your small group. Mm -hmm. Does there come a point where if somebody in your small group is like, I don't believe this. I'm out of this. I don't believe this at all. Would you feel the need to then ask them not to continue coming? Or is there a, uh, is the helpful posture of a pastor and a friend to say, okay, but keep coming. We love you. You can come.
2: No, I think you know. we would say especially come. Like yeah. no 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 you you stay. We want you here. Like you don't have to believe that things are you can open your eyes when we pray, like you
3: can <laughs> you can yes. you know
2: but be here because I this is I mean, Brian, we talk about this on the show. This is a communal faith.
3: Mm -hmm. And there
2: are seasons when we don't have the faith we need, but we borrow faith from others, whether or not we really realize it. And so I think just, again, like think about who Jesus hung out with. Jesus Mm -hmm. was not just hanging out with people who followed him. He was known for being a friend of sinners. So let's... uh, I don't know. I I would say, no, please don't leave. Don't leave. Don't leave. I think we would actually fight really hard to have them stay. Honestly,
1: that's great. Tara Beth Leach in this article, she talks about what it looks like to be a pastor medic Mm, uh, for, quote unquote, wounded people. She says, let me just read two of her quotes as we close this up. She said, we need pastor medics to compassionately wade into the bloodbath we ourselves have created and be, quote, wounded healers. And then she says, Just as Jesus would and is, the time is urgent for pastors to seek the lost sheep, Mm. selflessly nurture them back to health, and lovingly guide them home. I think that is such a beautiful picture. And like you said, it's a lot of what Mike Cosper did with Joshua Harris, just saying, hey, Jesus isn't done with you and speaking that truth. I think is a beautiful thing, and we bring this up because this is only going to continue to grow. I believe, as we see wreckage of some ugly things in evangelicalism, uh, there's going to be this deconstruction, this wrestling, and we as pastors and just we as Christ followers need to decide what are we going to do in that in that kind of scenario. Yeah. How are we going to do that? Well, coming up next, uh, a longtime Florida sports writer was able to pen his own obituary. I want to talk about legacy and what we want to be remembered for. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. That is author Aubrey Sampson, author of the new book Known,
2: Coming out next Tuesday, September 7th.
1: But for those of you who like to, like, be ahead of the game. Pre-order, right? Where can they pre-order your book?
2: You can pre-order it wherever books are sold. I would say, uh, if you want to help me, which you know you can or can't, it's helpful to order on Amazon.com, a little store you may have heard of.
3: <laughs> a you online can shop. also, you know what?
2: I, I will do this for our listeners only. Okay, this is a special Common good listeners. If you go to NavPress.com, you research the book Known K N O W N by Aubrey Sampson, and you use the promo code Aubrey A U B R E Y you will get a discount. So you can pre-order it there as well.
1: Excellent. Well, look at that. We're just handing out stuff. I got nothing to give our listeners. I got nothing. You're
2: promoting it, though, with your soul. So you're giving our listeners uh, that.
1: Send me an email and I'll find a pen in my bag and I'll mail it to you. How's that (laughs) sound? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we're excited for your book to come out and we'll keep talking about it as it does. And uh, yeah, looking forward to that. All right, Aubrey, we've done stories like this before, but I saw this. Uh, I was just reading through some things, and I really – I don't know why these these kind of grab at my heart so much. There was a guy by the name of David Alfonso. Uh, he passed away on August the 6th after, bo- after battling chronic lymphocytic, lymphocytic leukemia mm, for 25 years. Him. Wow. I can't imagine, uh, you know, and who knows what we will all face in our own futures, but battling an illness – for 25 years, David Alfonso, he died at the age of 73, and he worked at the Tampa Tribune down in Florida for 20 years. Uh, he was hospitalized in July as his condition worsened, and he said that his wife Janice told him she wouldn't be able to tell his story as well as she knew that he could. He's a writer. That's what he does. Mm. And so what did they do? He decided to write his one last story. He wrote his own obituary. Uh, in the days before his death, he summoned the energy to fill a yellow pad while lying at a hospital bed on oxygen, taking breaths, watching the Olympics and various sports. He was a sports writer and he wrote his own obituary. So before I share some of the stuff that he shared in his own obituary, Aubrey, like I don't know. I, I don't know why these tug at my heart so much, but it's kind of really uh, a a kind of cool concept, don't you think, of people who who have the ability, have some sort of space to be able to write their own obituary.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's something like in one sense, devastatingly sad about it, Mm -hmm. but there is something I think really meaningful and beautiful for people who have walked through the Valley of the shadow of death for a Mm -hmm. long time and then are sort of offering their words of wisdom to their loved ones. And then even to people like us, just to learn from, I, I do think there's something quite, quite powerful, quite, quite prophetic and, um, I don't know, holy in something like that, frankly.
1: Yeah, I think so too. it's like uh, that first person account, and so his obit- his obituary just kind of told his story. He told his own story of becoming a writer and then becoming an algebra teacher, uh, and of his long marriage. Uh, but at the end, he writes this. Let me just read to you some of this time. He says he talks about his disease. Now it's time to say goodbye. Uh, he says, once a two-time finisher of the St. Anthony's Triathlon, I'm bedridden and don't care for it a bit, even as the wonderful mm-hmm. care of hospice tries to take the edge off the inevitable. It was a great ride with lots of laughs and tenderness. In keeping with the tradition of obits, I ask you to make a donation to a worthy cause. They're everywhere. And he closed the obituary this way. Finally, buy a Sunday newspaper and enjoy it over a cheese omelet, crispy hash browns, thick bacon, <laughs> fresh Florida OJ and a large cafe con leche.
2: Cafe and con he, leche. There you go.
1: See, that's me not being the coffee drinker. <laughs> and then he closes it this way and remember, kindness is free. Sprinkle mm. that stuff everywhere. Mm. And that he wrote that less than just a couple weeks before he passed away. And Aubrey, this always reminds us of the fact that, and I don't think, I think this can be somewhat melodramatic, but can also be important. The Bible talks about this, that one of the inevitabilities of life is we are all going to die. Like there's coming a day and we hope for all of us that it's further down the road than closer, but there's coming a day and so as we live in that reality, it does change our perspective. We start to think about things like legacy, mm-hmm. and you start to think about mm-hmm. what are important ways to spend my life now. So maybe, Aubrey, talk about how just having that perspective is actually a biblical concept that we see throughout the Bible.
2: Oh, Brian, this, I, this, is, this feels so close to home right now because I feel like I have lots of friends battling really big Mm. chronic illnesses or like we were just at a funeral on Saturday with someone who died from cancer. I think it's, um, it's biblical in the sense that we, I mean, there's two things. One, We know that this world is not our final destination. Now, how you interpret that, whether, you know, Jesus is coming back and making this world new, or you're going to be with him in heaven. What I'm talking about is the fact that like, this is a short time that we have. Mm -hmm. And ultimately our destination is eternity with Christ in new creation. And um, so I think sometimes to have a long view of our life is really biblical. And, Um, Then I also think just to remember something you and I have talked about on this show a lot before, and I want you to quote this because I'm not going to say it right, but that poem, the dash that you bring up, can you, can you remind our people of that?
1: It's just a, I don't know why this poem has had an impact on me, but it's a, It's basically the concept. It's a well-written poem. You can Google it. It's called "The Dash." But the concept of the poem is: you don't control the first number on your gravestone, and you don't control the last number. But it's that dash between those mm, two numbers yeah. make the. Mo- and so, the whole point of the poem is make the most of the dash.
2: Yeah, make yeah. the
1: most every day, and you don't know what that last number is going right? to be if it's right. going to be weeks from now or decades from now. But I do think there is, as we live with a perspective of the book of James that says, this life is a mist. Uh, and, there you and go. It gives us hope, right? This guy, I don't know if he was a believer or not, but he had leukemia for 25 years. I mean, it's a long time. But you can always then, like we talked about yesterday, it can give you the perspective that says, that luckily, there's coming a day where mm-hmm. leukemia is all gone, mm-hmm. right? There's not going to be. But it also gives you an urgency to live now. Yes. Uh, to go all right, if, if this is all true, then, then what do I urgently need to do now? How, you know, what's it look like so that I don't waste this dash, if you will? Yeah. What's, what's an urgency that I live with? Because as I start to see the things of this world as kind of ultimate, you know, whether it be uh, my job or the money I can make or, you know, the next vacation, all of those are good things. I lose an urgency. And I think ultimately, Aubrey, the the urgency that we see in the Bible is best summed up by Paul, who said in the book of Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on to say, I don't know if I'm dying soon or later, but however many days I have left on this earth, I'm going to make the most of it for, you know, for Jesus. I'm going to serve him. Yeah. And Aubrey, that perspective uh, is not just some theoretical thing, right? Like having that sort of urgency really does change the way we live.
2: And I also think, I mean, you know, to keep in mind that Paul was actually not sure if he was about to face death or not, like martyrdom right. or not. And so I, I, I do think Paul lived with an urgency that all of us need, whether or not we're facing death at this very moment, that our, like you said, our, our life is a mist and it's a beautiful mist. But at That's the right. end of the day, like our call is to put the hand, our hand to the plow and not look back. And so we should be like, Declaring our faith, loving our neighbors, loving our family members in a way that like there'll be no regrets. And I know that's easier, you know, that's easy to reflect on when you're at a funeral and then life goes by and it gets overwhelming with, I don't know, bills and library books that are due and dentist appointments and things and you just. Kind of the the everyday aspects of life, you lose yeah. that urgency. But I do think it's a reminder for all of us to ask the Holy Spirit to give us a sense of urgency every single day, to live as if this one might be our last, in mm-hmm. a way that glorifies God.
1: That's good. You That's know? good. You you just hit close to home with the library books that are overdue. <laughs> really that uh, that hit a little close to me (laughs) 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 absolutely well again i always find those stories to be beautiful so hopefully that gives you some challenge as well coming up next president biden used some bible verses in an unfortunate manner the other day we're going to actually talk about why that's a big deal we're going to have that conversation next year on the common good am 1160 hope for your life
2: Coming up this hour, what's the danger of taking scripture out of context? And then, do we have a duty as Christians to stay or leave social media? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad that you're with us today. All right, you and I are pastors. We are. We handle the scriptures publicly quite a bit for our people. We don't do it perfectly, but we certainly. Uh, I I would say I'm speaking for you here, but I would certainly say we are committed to the to the at least attempting faithful biblical exposition. Wouldn't you say? Uh,
1: yes, that is the goal. Okay, <laughs>
2: that, that is <laughs> yes. the goal, and I would say we both probably have the words of James in our mind. That teachers are held to a very high standard. Yeah. So uh, Brian and I, and most pastors that we know. Very, try to be very faithful when it comes to the Word of God, even though we're sinful humans and sometimes we mess up. But last week, the president of our nation, President Joe Biden, uh, misquoted some scripture, or at least took it out of context. I was going to say he
1: quoted it he correctly, quoted it, just took it out of context, yeah,
2: in a way that I would say, like you just said, it felt a little dangerous. Let's go ahead and take a listen to his remarks. This was about uh, Kabul and Afghanistan.
0: Those who have served through the ages have drawn inspiration from the book of Isaiah when the Lord says, "'Whom shall I send? "'Who shall go for us?' The American military has been answering for a long time. "'Here I am, Lord, send me. "'Here I am, send me.'" Each one of these women and men of our armed forces are the heirs of that tradition of sacrifice, of volunteering to go in harm's way, to risk everything, Not for glory, not for profit, but to defend what we love and the people we love.
2: So that's Biden. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, who whom shall go send me? Wait, what does Isaiah say? You say it.
1: Whom shall I send? And he says, here I am. Here I am. Send me. me. Yes. Thank you.
2: And uh, Biden kind of put that in context with military action. Like Mm -hmm. the military are the ones who are being sent. Talk to me about what feels wrong about that.
1: Yeah, there's a couple things that I struggle with on this one. Uh, the first is this, uh, we just spent four years talking about Christian nationalism, right? And people shaking their fists at at the Trump administration Mm -hmm. of this intermingling of, uh, of Christianity and, um, you know, nationalism and the danger of it. And I think we rightfully so kind of called those things out. And I think this just reminds us and proves again, uh, that, that that intermingling uh, is not only on one side of the aisle. <laughs>
3: like we have, yeah. been, <laughs> yes. uh,
1: we have politicians who distort and use scripture to their um, to whatever ends uh, both sides of the aisle since the beginning of time. But I think people need to realize it's dangerous. It's a kind of a co-opting yeah. of our faith. And it's not just a conservative thing. It's not just a liberal thing. It is a both thing. Uh, but specifically the part that he used, what's so dangerous about it is that um it's it's not at all the purpose of the, the passage, text. right? Exactly. The purpose of the passage, if you remember, if you've been in church ever, you know Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah is in the very throne room of God, right? Yes. Like he's he's been called up, he has a he has a vision. This is where he says, I'm a, I'm a helpless sinner. I'm a dead sinner, you know, and, and God purifies him. And it's at that point that God says, who's going to go? Who is out there, basically? Mm-hmm. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And Isaiah is not then going to lead a military right. um, movement. Uh, Isaiah is going to go speak judgment. That's right. Isaiah is going on a mission that's going to be really hard. And is the opposite of a military move. Yeah. He's going to call people back to the Lord, um, to the Lord and to yeah. the ways of God. And so when you take Isaiah chapter six, verse eight here and, and just remove it from its context and drop it into a political speech, you could see how the president here made it into something that it wasn't meant to be at all. At all, because this verse is foundational. Ed Stetzer talks about how this verse is foundational for Christian mission Yes, uh, and and going. And and so that's why it's dangerous. If President Biden had gotten up there and said, hey, we're staring at Afghanistan right now, we're trying to get out, but there's a call, there's a deeper call of who's going to go and America is going to go, we're going to step in. You could rally behind that and say, but uh, to make totally. that out of Isaiah 6 is just manipulative yeah. uh, and, and bad use of scripture. And so I think when we see that as Christians, we need to go, no, 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 time out, time yeah. out. That is not right, regardless of the side of the aisle it comes from.
2: Yeah. And I, I would say, I think another like invitation in this for us is let's be people who are familiar enough with the scripture and even context of scripture to be able to notice when something like that mm-hmm. happens and it's wrong. Because my guess is there were a lot of people that were like, no, 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 no. Wow. Biden just totally took that out of context. That is not okay. And then there were a lot of people that didn't even think twice about it. And so I think a reminder for us, even if we're not academically trained in, you know, theology or, or biblical history or what have you, is like, let's be people of the word. Let's get yes. those. Let's get that. Uh, what's the Bible app called? The life app. Um, I'm blanking on what the Bible anyway, get a Bible app, doesn't matter. The U version? <laughs> Thank you. You version. I'm like, why can't yeah. I think of that really popular Bible app right now? Get the U version Bible app, read scripture, familiarize yourself with the Word of God, not just so like you can pay attention when scripture's misquoted, but that's certainly part of it. Like you know when it's true and when it's not. One of the things that Ed Setzer said in an opinion article at Religious uh, Religion News Service was this. He said, you know, um Listen, I understand the desire to turn to scripture to make sense of this tragedy. At least 13 servicemen and 170 civilians killed by that explosion in Kabul. I understand that. He says, however, while men and women were sent on a mission, it was certainly not the mission we read about in Isaiah. This is what you were talking about, Brian. Mm-hmm conflating these two is deeply problematic and harmful in the long run for three reasons. I'll just quickly run through these reasons. He says, first, the conflation of scripture in the United States of America, this is what you're talking about, nationalism, occurs in both Republican and Democratic administrations. It's inappropriate and blasphemous. I'm a I'm, uh, I'm kind of recapping what
3: he said. All right.
2: Um, He talks about how um, he relates it to January 6th, the insurrection that um, many evangelical leaders spoke out against the idol of Christian nationalism. Biden's comments reveal the subtle ways that nationalism can still gain a foothold, even in liberal circles. So I think that's important for us to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then he says, second, the use of this text in the context of military engagement is not only odd demonstrates a complete misunderstanding of the text. This is what you've already unpacked. And then he says, third, Biden's use of the verse completely misses the heart of the passage, which is actually what we need today. The world does not need more conflation between American foreign involvement with Isaiah 6. While I'm thankful for many examples in our history when America has been a force for good on the global stage, applying scripture to international diplomacy or the military has been and continues to be a recipe for skepticism toward true Biblical faith. And then he says this and we'll start to close. Let's not miss the full gravity of this disaster. The danger to many Afghans, to religious minorities and to international soldiers cannot be lost in sorting through the politics back home. And I Mm -hmm. I think that's ultimately part of it is, is let's not forget that like God, God is certainly the God of the military, meaning those who are in the military worship God and he's there, but God is also the God of the Afghan people who are hurting. And so I think Mm. it can tend to put like us versus them Mm. in a way that isn't helpful and isn't biblical.
1: Yeah. And Ed says, he says, just a reminder, the text is about the call of God on a man of God to spread the message of God and mm. thus to fulfill the mission of God. Mm. Like it's not a military verse. And I just think in closing on my end here, Aubrey, I think. We just have, we say this all the time. We must handle scripture well because if not, we can use it really in dangerously manipulative ways. Yeah. And that cannot be it. And so I think you had a good call. We need to know scripture enough to know when we're being manipulated by it. Yep. When people are using it as some sort of weapon or a tool. And then we need to be shaped by it. Like we need to not use it for our own Uh, ideas and whatever, but we need to be shaped by it. It needs to be what shapes us and not what drives our agenda
2: forward. Mm, That's a great word for all of us. Well, coming up next, we are going to talk about church conflict, how we handle it and how we do not handle it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm, and we're so thrilled that you're with us again today. Brian, we got another big topic to talk about. This was a crazy story. Before we dive into the story, let's just have a general conversation about church conflict and how we handle it. I've never
1: dealt with it before. Never. So I you don't, have no idea. <laughs> no. What, what is you don't this?
2: have conflict in your church. What, what is, is this
1: conflict <laughs> you speak of? Yeah. You know, you would like to think, Aubrey, that churches are better at conflict than the general culture. You would yes, like to you think would. that churches show greater grace, that they show greater patience, that they show greater forgiveness. One would like to think, and those things certainly happen, right? But
3: Absolutely. All too often,
1: right. we get... We get stories and podcasts and videos of churches where you're like, oh, my gosh, that is embarrassing. And so I guess I would say, uh, and I know we're going to jump into one of those stories, but I I would say in general, when there are people in conflict within a church or groups of people, one would like to think that there's going to be a unity and a graciousness, but also Mm -hmm. an honesty uh, but also with the purpose of not scoring points, but of restoration of fellowship, restoration yes. of relationship yes. uh, so that the church can remain unified and the family of God, the community, the church community can remain uh, tight. And so I think when that doesn't happen, it gives a black eye to the church and it yeah, distorts right. the gospel. You're right. Uh, people lose sight because if if you and I were in a church together and we disagreed mm-hmm. and it got ugly mm-hmm. which would likely happen if you and I were in a church. Living.
2: Absolutely we could never work together Brian.
1: Oh yeah <laughs> if that were to happen how we deal with that conflict will be an uh, will be in some ways a reflection of of what we believe about Jesus.
2: Absolutely so- it will it will reflect our witness. Correct
1: to people within the church and outside mm-hmm. the church. And so therefore, it's not like just, ah, you should do better. Don't argue on Facebook. Don't do this. No, you should actually say, hey, people who are watching from within the church and outside the church are might be looking at Jesus through the lens of how yeah. you and I resolve our disagreement. They might learn about forgiveness. They might learn about grace. Mm-hmm. They might learn about patience and mm-hmm. all of these things that then we could say, well, those are things that Jesus has provided for us when he went to the cross. That's and so right. it, it, it it is a really important deal. I know we make jokes. Everybody makes jokes about church conflict. And the reason we make jokes about it is because it happens so frequently uh, and is not always handled very well.
2: I love what you just said, too. The way we resolve conflict will teach mm-hmm. people about Jesus. Because it's not that there's not going to be church conflict. Right. I mean, that's just like unrealistic and so, I there's no problem with church conflict. That's just life. But the way we handle it, the way we dignify and honor each other in the middle of it, that really is what matters. That's I love right. that you said it like that. Well, I bring this up, Brian, because there was a fascinating story from Sunday morning. All right, <laughs> uh, mega church in the Nashville area called Grace Chapel. Apparently, there's been a church conflict there going on for a while between the man who founded the church and between some of their other leaders. And I don't know the ins and outs. We don't need to know all the ins and outs. But what we know is that um, their current pastor stood up to apologize to the congregation for this ongoing conflict. And then apparently somehow the man um, who was the founder, Reverend Steve Berger, his wife got a mic (laughs) This is crazy. She got on stage and she just started uh, really going off on people for sitting against her husband and said that it has been made manifestly evident that there's been an endeavor to cancel the founding pastor of Grace Chapel, her husband. She accused the current pastors of labeling her husband as a Christian extremist, said that they would be leaving the church. I mean, it was a really big deal. And that nobody just, stopped her. I don't know no one stopped her. They just let her have that mic and and take over.
1: Yeah, you and I were both saying this happened in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh you and I both said that we 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 were hoping when we opened this article it would be Ian Simpkins. But <laughs> yeah, it was we not. wanted it to be
2: <laughs> Ian Simpkins church. They it also says in this article that um they had an online broadcast going, but they cut it during her remarks and that the service, the church service was abruptly canceled after that but like the later service yeah
1: there are a couple things that stand out in this to me one is the governor goes to this church uh so it is an influential church Mm -hmm. Two, the founding pastor he stepped down after nearly three decades at the church uh he as he stepped down in january in order to start a discipleship program for influencers in washington dc okay okay and uh, some of the other people have labeled him as kind of a right-wing extremist. So that's kind of where this went, a Christian extremist. Gotcha. Uh, and that's kind of where. So there is, Aubrey, it, it, there's the um, the painful aspect of, like, the founding pastor's yeah, life. Is... Like you said, she was not invited to speak. Right. She grabbed a microphone and got up, and everyone was kind of like, I don't know what to do at this point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it uh, takes
2: some guts for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah, and there's other background. Like it, there's, you could see why there's a lot of emotion. The founding fathers, Steve, Steve Berger, uh, he he claimed stuff about the January 6th insurrection. Mm. He was in Washington to attend a pro-Trump rally on that day. Later, apologizing for some of his remarks. So you could, it has everything that is right now causing lots of uh, consternation. Uh, yes. But here's the deal. Uh, uh, the other thing I learned is, uh, man, Aubrey, tell me the longer you do this show, the more you realize everything in evangelicalism, good and bad, feels centered in Nashville.
2: <laughs> like, <laughs> there is so much happening in Nashville. There is a un- major truth to that.
1: Believable. It's crazy. <laughs> but what makes this painful, it, there is some cringeworthy comedy in this. There is some, mm-hmm. but what makes it really painful is this is an influential church. Like I said, the governor of Tennessee goes there. Yeah. Uh, And this got national news, the ex-pastor's wife getting up on stage and just kind of going nuclear, and they had to acknowledge things they had done wrong. And you're just like, okay, this is the antithesis of disagreement being handled uh, well. It's it's the opposite of it. It feels like our politics. It feels like a very politically driven church when you read about the founding pastor. Yeah. But again, again, Aubrey, like, you know, again, we kind of roll our eyes out, but it is another black eye for the church. People watching going, oh, another crazy right wing church with crazy people yeah. who can't get along. And, and what's it say about Jesus? What does yep. it say about the witness? And I, I, again, so for that reason, it's just painful. It is painful. Churches go through transitions. Churches go through hard times, like mm-hmm. families do, but they just have to get better. Generally speaking, uh, at, at at just uh, doing this conflict well instead of just a a huge black eye.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I would I would affirm some things you said. You can see the emotion in it, and I think for any church, big or small, this happens to be a mega church, but churches big or small. The church is a family. Yes. And so when families uh, have conflict, it hurts. It's painful. There are a lot of emotions. And so That's I right. under I mean I get the instinct to want to grab a mic and like stand up for your man. Like Deadsy. I yeah. I totally get that. But I at the end of the day, I am so with you. This is not the way to portray the reconciliation and peace and even the conflict that we should be having as believers. Like the, that conversation, I'm sure there were conversations that happened privately. I'm sure there were conversations that happened yes. even in small groups. But just to grab a mic and uh, really cause a lot of church, I don't know, I guess division, I think yes. is not okay. And I listen, I don't think you and I would ever be one to say, don't use your voice. Don't stand up against what's evil. But it seems like this is a situation that just was completely not handled well Correct. by this woman's wife and and I, you know, I mean this woman's husband and uh and the wife as well. Sorry, I'm getting a little tongue-tied there, but you yeah, know what I'm yeah, saying. Anyway, yeah. a little bit tricky, a little bit interesting. I think the word for all of us is let's remember. Our witness is at stake. We can have conflict, but like Brian said, let's do it in a way that honors God and honor the other person. So that's an interesting story. Coming up next, we're going to talk about social media. Do we have a duty as Christians to stay or to leave? We'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson joined by my co-host Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. All right, Brian, we talk a lot on the show about social media. And I I know you're a big Twitter guy. You don't post a lot, but you do a lot on Twitter, right? Like meaning you you get a lot of your news and your sports stuff on Twitter. Is that right? That
1: that is a true statement. I've tried to get I've tried to lessen very much how much I'm on Facebook. I probably am on Twitter too much, although I know we're about to have an article that would argue against that, but you're right. I don't, I don't tweet much, but I do kind of go there for news. What's going on with the day? How are the Mets doing? All that kind of stuff.
2: And do you feel as a Christian any sense of duty to be on Twitter or just social media in general? Like, what's your, what's your feeling about like what it means to be a Christian on social media?
1: I don't feel any duty to do it. I think. Uh, if I did feel a duty, I think you, that it would require that I post more and tweet That's more. That's true. Yeah, um, I do think I I feel a compulsion as a radio host to be on and knowing what's going on in, mm. in the Christian world and in the general world. Uh, but I have total respect for people. I kind of did it with Facebook. I have total respect for people who are like um, – I'm not, uh, this is not a healthy place for me. It's either taking up too much of my time or it's making me angry or it's whatever else it might be. I don't, I think we have a duty to be uh, in the community. And if that for you is online or that's part of it, wonderful, then be there and be uh, an ambassador of Christ, be a good representative. If that's in your, in your neighborhood or in your workplace, I think, uh, I don't think there's anything special about say social media but I do think we need to put it in that list with the other places where we talk about being a missionary too. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting because I have several friends who have decided they can't be on Twitter anymore because they're not talking about Instagram or Facebook, but Twitter specifically has become almost a just a toxic place, a negative place, an abusive place that they were just like, "I'm out." Like I'll I'll stick on Instagram, I'll stick to Facebook. But I I am not going to be on Twitter anymore because I think, you know, as people are starting to call it bitter Twitter, like it's just kind Mm -hmm. of this angry, ugly place. But interestingly, uh, one of our friends, Tish Harrison Warren, wrote an article for Christianity Today called this. Don't quit Twitter yet. You might Mm -hmm. have a moral duty to stay And so uh, we'll unpack the article, but Brian, just hearing that, that concept of moral duty, you just said you don't necessarily have that, but do you think that there are some Christians who have a moral duty to stay on Twitter? Uh,
1: Yeah, I understand it because if so much of our cultural discourse is happening online, social media, Twitter, uh, wherever else it might be, then I could see uh, people saying, you know what, It would be a terrible deal if all of us Christians just eliminated ourselves from it and there was no Christian voice on there. It presupposes that you're going to represent Jesus well and you're going to engage and that you've got both the time and the, um, I don't know, kind of emotional and mental fortitude that it's going to take, like you said, to put up with the bitterness and the anger and the takes and all of this stuff. I don't think I would ever rise it to a duty. Like it's like we have to be there. But I do think I do want to rise, raise it to um, – it's a mission field. It's a place where Christ- there needs to be Christian voices. Like I mm-hmm. think it's important that Christians are on there having discourse, engaging people. I'm not sure that I would ever get up in, in the pulpit and tell the church, you have a moral duty to be on Twitter. You have a moral duty to be on Facebook, and here's how you should act. I do think we need to talk about here's how you should act on these places – But I don't know. I don't know that I would raise it to that level. How about you?
2: Um, You know, I I, until reading this article, like she's kind of swaying me a little bit because I actually think. Yeah, she's pretty brilliant. Um, Tish. Tish. I always say her name wrong. Tish Harrison Harrison Warren. Warren. Yes. Um, I I think I would have probably said, put your phone away. Step away from social media. Be present. Stop playing the comparison game walk away from you know i think those are the put the unplug like i think i would have called the church that and have called the church to that i think the the um argument that she has that's really interesting is she says this i've had older church leaders praise the ideas of opting out of social media altogether they want Definitely. to be above the fray which is not a bad goal but i wonder if christians have some responsibility to enter the fray even if it's fraught with all sort of temptations perils and dangers. I think this is the interesting question. If most of the world is moving towards online engagement, like most conversations are happening online, most community is being built online, most news is happening online. That means a lot of spiritual formation is happening online. And this is how I feel about the public schools. If all the Christians leave, then who is being a light there? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if that same argument can be used for social media. If all the Christians leave, who is spreading the love and message of Jesus there? And so I do think, now I'm not saying this is true for all Christians Mm -hmm. everywhere, but I wonder if Christians do maybe need to consider of course, healthy rhythms, step away, recognize your soul, like, know if this is not good for you, if it is, but maybe God is calling you to lean in and to declare him there because, uh, you know, otherwise people are going to be informed by anything but Jesus.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really fair. I just think there is also a flip side to the dangers of social media that we need to uh, to take very seriously. I mean, uh, you here's the deal we can make this argument about the need for christian presence in every aspect of our culture and i absolutely. think absolutely but there are some people who shouldn't go to some places
2: yeah you're in right the, Brian. in you're the right.
1: name in the name of um you know of being a, a an ambassador of being a christian yeah. representative and i even yeah. think you know i i tend to agree with you about public schools but i do think there come times where you're there are certain things going on with your kids where you go, you know what? I don't it's think it's time that for them to
2: be in a. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. You're right. There
1: are times to pull. And so I think she may I, I I I do agree with what she's saying. There needs to be Christian engagement in the places where uh, where our greater uh, culture as a whole is engaging. Uh, but I do think that that those come with specific um, considerations for specific situations of there are some people who just have addictions to social media and yeah, they just need to right. get off. Yep. Uh, but generally speaking, I agree with her that we need to be engaging. And then like we've talked about already today, we need to be engaging in a Christ honoring way. On yes. These platforms.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. And then I think the other sort of like next layer to this is like, are you engaging in social media at the expense of actually engaging with your real life flesh and blood neighbors? (laughs) You know what I mean? And so there has to be a place where you actually are loving your actual physical neighbors and you're living in the actual real world. And that sounds a little dramatic, but I think it's where things are headed. Like the Uh, Social media can take up so much of our time and our space and our energy that we don't even have like the capacity to actually love and care for those who live across the street from us or live next door to us. And so let's remember our calling is to yes, love our neighbors on social media, but love your neighbor, 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 neighbor in real life.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great call because I think uh, while. Social media is part of the real world. We can start to think that it's all that they're like, it is the yeah. real. No, it's not. Go talk to your neighbor. Like you said, right. yeah, reconnect with your family, uh, engage with your coworker, nothing. Social media can't replace uh, flesh and blood. I know we're in a pandemic and it gets complicated, but it can't replace that for sure.
2: Yeah, yep, that's a good word. Well, coming up next, we are going to talk about tips for easing your children's back to school anxiety and easing your own back to work anxiety. These are very real things we're going to talk about. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday evening. Thanks so much for being with us today. As we close out the show, my name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co host, Brian Fromm, and we love to encourage you we love to give you something uh, positive to think about and our kids have gone back to school officially mine are in the second and third week of school Brian yours are as well right starting off the second week at least
1: yeah my middle schoolers this is their first full week but they went for half a week last week my my high school daughter feels like she's been in for like a month and a half by <laughs> she's now. been
2: in since <laughs> the summer right, right. Yeah, exactly exactly right. so yeah
1: no we, it feels like uh it, like the beginning of school stuff is over it feels like we're back into now they're in school and the, kind of that rhythm
2: yeah back in school back into the rhythm and then a lot of adults are starting to leave their remote uh, working that they've been yeah. doing for a while and headed back and so the reality is there's still some anxiety That many of us are facing, especially our little ones who have maybe been home with us for a while or have done school remotely and now going back into a masked school year or going back after being at home with parents for almost a year and a half like, you know, it's real that some of our little ones and even adults might be feeling some social anxiety getting back into the world. Good morning, America had an expert from the Child Mind Institute on giving parents tips for walking their kids through their own anxiety. And so I thought we'd take a listen to that. And then Brian and I could just unpack some of the other tips for you. So let's go ahead and listen to their wisdom.
1: The Child Mind Institute, an organization dedicated to mental health work with children and families, has a list of resources for families with back-to-school and back-to-work anxiety. What are the specific issues facing families with younger children, and what's your advice to them? We need to make space for the fact that
0: kids may be experiencing very new things, transitioning into elementary school. And it's really important to say, look, what do I need to support you around? The Sannies worry about their younger daughter and
3: socialization.
2: It's been a real big adjustment for her. She's used to being at
3: home with her sister as her playmate. The family seeking advice from Dr. Dave Anderson about the transition. I find myself very anxious about sending
2: my girls back to school. How do I project a sense of calm and not transfer that
3: anxiety to them?
0: The, The answer is always something in moderation. We don't want a parent to fully suppress everything that they're feeling. And so a lot of the
1: ways that we see parents dealing with their anxiety are to make sure to review the kinds of procedures that the school has put in place to keep kids safe.
2: All right, Brian. So one of the things that they talked about was this concept of moderation, meaning Mm -hmm. allow your kids to express their fear and anxiety, but then also kind of point them to some of the positive things schools are doing. Hey, schools are going to have guidelines. Schools are going to have hand sanitizers, hand sanitizer. <laughs> it's easy for you to Sco- see. Yeah, right. Schools are going to keep you safe. Um, We'll unpack their other tips. So what did you think about that first one?
1: You know, I think it's such a fine line right now between trying to tell our kids, hey, you're good. It, you're going to be fine. Like you're good. Right. Uh, and also uh, trying to say, hey, you know, you got to still follow the guidelines. And it's like, I don't know my kids. I don't know how your kids are. Uh, it is not anxiety at all that they're dealing with about like, am I going to be safe? It's more like, can we just be done with this? So I kind of mm-hmm. feel like, it, and I know my kids that that that's just kind of our deal right now. Whereas this family in this Good Morning America report, they are very much dealing with everybody's scared. We're all scared. We're, yeah, they're we're scared. anxious about it. And so I don't know where your kids are at, but my kids are very much like, Really, we're still doing this, or is this really necessary? And so, my conversation with my kids has to be much more uh, hey, just do what you're supposed to do. Mm. Like, you know, don't be that kid, Uh, you know, be respectful of what the school has set up. Um, But yeah, the day will come where this is over. But I think for those who are feeling anxious, I do think these are really helpful. Like, hey, let me remind you why. You know, we can't take away all threats in this life and, right. and in this world, COVID or anything else. Uh, but there's things that the schools are doing and your mom and dad are doing to help. And I also would remind parents that, like he said in this report at some point, you can be open and honest with your kids, but just be careful. I think a lot of times we project anxiety onto point. our kids where, point. There's, where there's not anxiety. And then all of a sudden we make them anxious because they're like, Ooh, mom and dad are freaked out right now. <laughs> and so
2: I'm feeling that, right. Yeah, right.
1: so I'd be careful. I'd be careful with that. That's where my kids are at. Where are your kids at with us?
2: Yeah, I would say each of my kids is in a different place. So mm-hmm. I would say I have one child in particular who is just more prone to anxiety and worry. And so for him, I think he's um I don't know that he's necessarily nervous about getting COVID. But I do think he's just nervous about like, can I do school like I've been online for a long time and going back and having homework and I feel behind and things that feels overwhelming. I would say another of my um, students just even expressed yesterday that he feels really behind, particularly mm, in a subject because of COVID. And that that brings up some anxiety. And so, I, you know, I think it is the point being it's helpful to know where our kids are at. Mm-hmm. And spend some time just helping them express their feelings about things. And like you said, let's not put our own anxiety and worry on our kids. Let's not project that on there. But maybe just provide space for them to be able to talk about like, hey, what are you stressed about? What are you worried about? For sure. Um, Some of the other tips that this uh, Good Morning America report gave, and this was primarily for younger kids. But um, one was like we've been talking about just validating their feelings. Two is having a positive focus. Um, a third one related to that is really focusing on positive aspects of the change. So hey, man, I know you're clinging to being on remote because that was kind of cool and felt safe, but you get to see your friends now, you get to know your teachers, you get to have fun, you get to be at lunch with your friends like, Talking about the things that are positive. And then one of the things that they recommended, and I think this would be helpful for especially young kids, is practicing separation before school. Because if your kids are feeling separation anxiety from parents, that you can practice just even like have them. I I don't exactly know how you do this practically, but 30 minutes uh, help, help them practice being by themselves or being with a trusted adult. And then remembering, hey, they're going to see you at the end of the day, so they'll feel safe again, like doing little practice rounds of separation. I think that would be especially helpful for any young kid dealing with separation anxiety, whether or not they're thinking about COVID or not.
1: I think those are good. And I think we we could get so worked up about COVID only. They they talked their fourth tip is about focusing on sleep and diet. And actually, there are some things that we can get back into a normal routine that aren't just about COVID. Like I think there you go. Sometimes it's a self fulfilling prophecy that if I just keep talking about COVID. Because I'm worried my kids are going to be nervous about COVID. It's going to make them nervous about COVID. Like there's this <laughs> that like,
2: that's so true.
1: And so you could talk about, here's what we need to do. You're safe. Now let's talk about when are you going to do your homework? When mm-hmm. are we going, What's bedtime going to be? Mm-hmm. What's our routine in the morning going mm-hmm. to be? And you just get into some normalcy. And if COVID rears its head, then you deal with it. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, and you can have that talk. But if you're just constantly anxious about COVID and your kid to your children, your kids are going to be anxious about COVID. And so, uh, you know, with all of this, it's been this fine line with kids, right? You also don't want to be like, ah, it's nothing. Don't worry right, about it. Like right. you want to walk that fine line. But I, I, you know, I think we just need to be careful. And I think the more normal we can act around our school day, the better off it'll be.
2: Yeah, it'll, it'll rub off them. Like I think sometimes, I mean, anxiety is real, but sometimes there's an aspect of it that's more caught than taught. And so I do think you're right. It's it's worth giving them an example of what it looks like to kind of um, have peace, to move forward. But then I think also as Christian parents, our, our big calling is to remind our kids that they can cast their cares on Jesus mm. and that God is with them. So, you know, things like pray with your kids in the morning, teach your kids to say, God, I feel nervous right now. Can you take care of me? And I think you'll be amazed at how God shows up along your kid's school day That's right. and in their anxiety um, when they're feeling nervous like that. So this is a good reminder for all of us that we can, um, even in our anxiety, there are things that we can do tangibly And we have a God who's with us in the middle of it. So we hope that encourages you. And we hope that encourages your little ones if you have them and if they're facing some scary feelings right now. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Be sure to come back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.